Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing recently. And a new ambassador to the episode and new cast member is Riley from Board Game Community Show. And on this episode are That Tabletop Bellhop, Board Game Hot Takes, Dice and Dragons, Board Game Community Show, The Meeple Dungeon, Board on the Air, Meeple and the Moose, all games new and old, the Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And please take a moment to check out the links in the show notes for the cast, and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge helping you make your game nights better. Now, you may have missed me last week as Deanna and I were out of town checking out all the happy places in Windsor-Essex. Now, quite a few of the games I'm going to talk about today come from that trip. I've got lots to talk about covering the last two weeks, so let's get going. So first up, Deanna, Sean, and I continue to play and enjoy Lost Ruins of Arnak on Board Game Arena. This is a fantastic implementation of the game, as long as you play the physical version at least once, which we all have. We've been really deep diving the snake side of the map for our most recent plays, and I look forward to even more. Next up, we finish Scenario 2 of The Ghost Betwixt, a modern horror retro dungeon crawling game set in the 90s in America's haunted heartland. Now, while we're still struggling a bit to figure out all the rules and how everything works, we have been really enjoying this unique dungeon crawler. If you dig games like Gloomhaven Descent and Imperial Assault, I think you'll find a lot to like here. Just realize, despite the Scooby-Doo look, this is not a kid's game. Up next comes the final story in Star Wars Unlock. Uh, for us, our final one was Secret Mission to Jeddah. Uh, this was by far the most difficult, and we got totally, completely stuck. Stuck enough that it actually kind of ruined the game night, with uh, family arguing together over what we should be doing next and trying just random numbers on a clue map. Uh, we had five of us playing, which I think is too much for this game. Possibly all the unlocks, but definitely the Star Wars. There's just not enough stuff to pass around. The cards are too small to see from across the table. And there's no branching paths. There's no multiple puzzles different groups can work on at once. You're all stuck trying to solve the same thing at the same time. Overall, I was left with mixed feelings on the Star Wars Escape Room game. And I can't recommend it for everyone. Now, if you played other unlock games and are familiar with their card-based, app-based system and like it, and don't mind some of the metagaming out-of-the-box thinking that's required, I think this could be a cool Star Wars product from you. For you, sorry. For Star Wars fans, though, who don't know Unlock, you might want to look elsewhere for your long time ago in a galaxy far, far away gaming. 
Now we come to another game of Brew Crafters the Travel Card Game, which I recently realized or, or figured out was rebranded and re-released as Microbrewers. So if you hear me talking about this game and you want to find a copy, you're going to look for a card game called Microbrewers instead of Brew Crafters Travel Card Game. Now again, we got to play this at a brewery. This time it was Grow Brewing in Kingsville. Overall, I'm still digging this light, multi-use card engine building game. I like the various strategies. It's quick to play. It's simple. It's not the best game in the world, but I just love being able to play it in a brewery, especially when like the staff come over and are like, are you playing a game about making beer in a brewery? And I'm like, heck yeah, I am. And now I'm going to quest to play it in as many breweries as I can. So listen in the coming weeks to see if I hit any others. Now, this leads me to Point Salad, which was actually my most played game of the last two weeks. Multiple, multiple plays. Most of the time, um, we never sat down and just played one game. Anytime we sat down and played this game, we played multiple times in a row. And I, we've been enjoying this one with my regular game group with Tori and Kat, with our extended family when we go over to Brenda's, and just two players, Dee and I, while we were on our trip. Now, this really is a brilliant game that I think most game groups are going to enjoy. From hobby gamers to mass market gamers, from card players to heavy strategy gamers. Now, for more info on Point Salad, I invite you to check out my review on the blog. It went live just yesterday, uh, or two days ago at this point, sorry. And you can also listen to our latest podcast episode where that's our featured review. Now, The Duke was next, and it remains one of our all-time favorite two-player games. We love The Duke. Now, we only played once. It was happened to be over breakfast with some amazing Colasanti's Donuts and some fresh coffee. But it was an epic match that went back and forth and back and forth. It lasted almost two hours, which was only a problem because it kind of bled a bit into our lunch plans while we were on our trip. But other than that, it was a great game. It was a close game, and it just reinforced everything I like about the Duke. If you don't have the Duke yet and you like two-player abstracts, you need to go out and find a copy. Uh, the latest version of that is actually called the Duke Lord's Legacy, and it actually comes with some of the expansions. Now, I will admit, when we play, we pull all the expansions out and just play with the base set, but to each their own. Next up, I have Aldabas, Doors of Cartagena from Grand Gamers Build, which has been quite a bit of a roller coaster ride for us. Uh, this is a review copy that I received from Grand Gamers Guild, and I normally love their games. And I got to say, when I first opened this and read it, it sounded really smart and kind of brilliant, but our first couple of games were rough. Um, there is a lot of iconography in this game, and the scoring system, how it works and what you score, just isn't evident until you sit down and play. And I got to say, our first couple plays, we were pretty extreme. And by extreme, I mean we played by the wrong rules. We messed up quite a few things, like forgetting that cards queue off the cards next to them, um, not realizing that you can't split coins when you're moving multiple coins at once, and a few other rules. Now, I will admit, later games got better, but we were still getting a key rule wrong until gameplay four. Somehow, I missed the fact that you take two actions every turn and not one. We were so busy trying to figure out those different actions that we missed that you actually get two of them. And I've got to say, once we figured that out and played with the proper rules, wow, did the game get better. Now, I could already tell there was some, some, something to like about the game, even when we were playing wrong. But I will admit, it turned off a couple of our regular game groups. But we play with the wrong rules. So I am really looking forward to reintroducing that to my group with the proper rules. Now, I will say now that we're playing properly, I do dig it. But I got to warn everyone that in this day of one and done games, where many people experience a game for one time and don't go back to it, despite what they think they were going to do, uh, the first couple plays of this were rough. The learning curve here was higher than we expected from what seems like a simple card game. 
This does take some level of commitment to get to the good parts, and that's not going to be for every group. Though I do say at this point, it's worth learning the game and taking that time. But again, one and done, maybe not the greatest game. Finally, um, normally I've been talking about these games even though we had multiple plays just as one item here, but I'm going to bring up the Ghost Betwixt again because we finished Scenario 3. Now, this is a big epic game, right? Now, we've only lost once on our first play, but every game has been really close, like really close. Uh, the, the one before one of our family members was actually knocked out before we won. Scenario 3, we were all down to like one or two hit points. Now, the problem that we found once we got to Scenario 3, how long it took. Now, this is the longest scenario yet, and it's concerning because every time we play the Ghost Betwixt, it's part of a game night where we plan to do more. So it's like, oh, we're going to finish a scenario Ghost Betwixt, and then we're, in this case, we're going to try the Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade Deck Builder. Well, we never got to that because we didn't finish the Ghost Betwixt until 3 a.m. So at this point, the Ghost Betwixt has become an event game, which is fine. I don't mind event games, but event games I like to schedule ahead of time to do on a certain night and we get together and we play that game. I don't like breaking them out on regular game night where everyone's expecting more than one game. Now, Board Game Geek does seem to indicate things get faster after Scenario 3, so we'll see. That is our next game. We'll find out. Also, uh, because I'm pretty sure I mentioned on this cast, if I haven't, I mentioned at least on our podcast, that I did have some speculation that the player count may be off in the box. I was incorrect about that. This is a one to four player game and remains being a one to four player game. Well, that's it for what I've been playing. Now, one more thing before I go. Usually this is a point where I tell you to tune into our podcast recording on Twitch tonight, but we're not doing that. Actually, I'm going in for dental surgery today and I don't expect to be in any shape to record any. So instead, wish me luck with that. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano. Good night and game on or good day or good afternoon, wherever you happen to be. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes podcast, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. This week, I'm going to talk about Batoku. This is a game that was designed by German Milan and published by Devere Games. Now, Batoku is a heavy Euro through and through, but it's got such a beautiful theme on it, you'll probably forget that it's a Euro as you're taken out of the box. Uh, the the theme of this game is that you are forest spirits that are trying to uh, essentially become the greatest forest spirit by good deeds um, and just uh, becoming the best spirit in the forest. Uh, this is a big, huge dice worker placement board that's out on the table with a whole bunch of variable tiles that are going to be set up at these different locations. I won't get too much into the mechanisms here because there is a lot to get into. But generally, you have three actions on your turn. You have a handful of four cards you're starting with, and you have three spots on your personal player mat. So you can play one of the cards to get the benefit on that card. When you do, you unlock one of the dice that's next to it. So you can play three cards in a round, and you can have three dice, which are going to be worker place workers that you can place out on the board to um, take actions out on the board. So that's six actions. But one more thing you can do, and one of the things that leads to the most interesting timing decisions in this game is that once you've used a worker out on the board, you can move it across the river, which is some other worker placement space, spaces that are on the top side of the board. But you're kind of racing for those because there's not enough of those for every player to have three workers up there. So the, the timing that you put these out there, that you move them up, that you move them across the river is very important. 
and add some adds to some of the player interaction in the game. Um, the game is interesting. Um, there are some interesting choices to be made. Uh, it's got a little bit of a deck building element. One of the worker placement spaces you can take allows you to add new deck, new cards to your hand, uh, which will then get shuffled in for future turns. You can also scrap some cards, but it's light. It's very uh, maybe similar to Lost Ruins of Arnak as far as the amount of deck building you're doing. You maybe are going to pick up one to two cards in a round, and then you know you'll you'll see them in a couple turns, and it's played over I think five five rounds. So. It's not going to be a lot of that, but there's a little element to that. It's a little bit of worker placement, as I mentioned, with the dice worker placement. Not too much of that either. Um, so nothing that's really unique from a mechanism perspective, but it works okay together. Now, here's my concern with it after a couple a couple plays so far, a couple solo plays primarily, is that the game has a lot of complexity, and I don't think it's worth the payoff. Um there's a lot of iconography you have to you have to kind of sort through. This is a, a language independent production, and so everything is iconography. Every space you're taking, pretty much, there are like five choices there, but most of the choices are in these variable tiles that come up, and that's cool. It's neat that you get to see some different things. I don't think the choices are different enough in most cases to to you know kind of qualify for giving you that much option in there. But it's a nice change. But I, I just think, you know, for my couple experiences, the time I had to invest into trying to learn and understand how this game plays, the time I have to invest into checking the rule book for rules, for, um, you know, examples on cards and things like that, it's, it's a lot. Um, now, I would like to play this game multiplayer once or twice and see if it sticks with me. I have to say that the production is so beautiful. It's one of the nicest Euro game productions I've ever seen. The board's amazing. It's this uh, slotted dual layer board that allows you to kind of slot some different things in there depending on player count. You can also flip it over for the one to two player game. Um, there are so many, so much beautiful artwork. All of these great little resource components are, are unique wooden, in some case, screen printed components. The card artwork is this kind of cartoony forest spirits, which is really pretty. Uh, this game just looks amazing. And so I'm really sad that I didn't love it. I'm sad that I didn't love it, but I'm going to play it a couple more times, see if it grows on me even more, if the, getting into the flow becomes easier after a couple more plays. But I would say at this stage, Butoku is a interesting game. It's a decent game, but it's not a great game. So I don't think Butoku is going to be staying in my collection. But if you like a heavy Euro game and want something that's got a little bit more color, it's a, it's got an interesting theme on it. It's definitely worth you know worth a play. It's definitely worth checking it out. Um, and we'll see how it how it stays for me. And if you're interested in hearing more, I do plan to talk about this one on our show uh, once I've had a little bit more playtime with it. I just wanted to kind of get my full thoughts before I brought it on there. So uh, that's my initial thoughts. Um, interesting enough, I'm hoping to get a couple more plays of it and then we'll see where it goes from there. I think that'll wrap this uh, chat up. Uh, if you would like to find us, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Board Game Hot Takes. You can also find us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes, which is where we do most of our conversation. This is where we have most of our conversations with listeners, chat with a lot of listeners. I also release a weekly poll, which we read on the show. So uh, feel free to come check us out there. Until next week, take care, everybody. What up gamers, I'm Jason. 
I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons, and you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. What is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays! And what game have we been playing? Venn! Sounds like a math problem. <laughs> well, it does use Venn diagrams, and this is published by the Op Games. Unfortunately, the designer is not listed in the rulebook or on Board Game Geek, so we can't give credit where credit is due. Now, this game is a party game that can be played either competitively or cooperatively. In the competitive mode, you are two teams trying to be the first to call Venn and score your points because that is the end of the timer. When you're playing cooperatively, you've got two minutes to figure out what the clue giver is trying to tell you. How it works is there is a list of words that correspond to uh, a track that has numbers 1 through 12. The clue giver has three specific numbers and then is going to be using absurdist art cards to try to get you to guess what the word is. Now the reason that you're using the Venn diagram is there are effectively seven zones in play. You have got the three outer zones which correspond to a single word, the three inner zones that will correspond to two words, and then the center which would correspond to all three, which I think is going to be pretty hard to use. I think I've explained enough about the game. It's a little bit hard to uh, describe verbally, but don't worry, we got a video coming so we'll be able to check it out. Yeah, so this this game when we uh, opened it up, I uh, I was a, wasn't sure about it because it's a little abstract, and I'm you, like, mm, those little circles, you know. You gave me a lot of looks like, what the heck is this? This looks well, really the cards, complicated. The cards are really strange, uh, you know, and they're double. Anyways, I wasn't, I really wasn't sure. I kept an open mind. Uh, we played with some non-gamers, um, and. You know, I honestly think it was very easy to pick up. There wasn't a lot of explanation. There was a little bit of, um, okay, let's just go with the flow. Uh, but it was a lot, honestly a lot more fun than I thought. And I have to agree with you because when I was going through the rule book and just looking at how it was going to play cooperatively, uh, right now we're enjoying a nice relaxing vacation. So there's only four of us. Not really the best scenario to play competitively with teams of two. We thought that we were going to have to play uh, some of the competitive mode to actually be able to review this, but the timer worked a lot better than I thought. It really kept pushing us. Oh, it definitely and, adds the stress element. Yeah, so it kept that stress element there from the competitive game, and that's really the only difference because if you're playing competitively, one team's going to figure it out first, and then the other team's going to try to guess with what they have left. So you're going to have that more head dead element, but the timer is a very solid replacement, and you can do it either way. Honestly, I think with smaller groups, you play cooperatively. Bigger groups, you would play competitively. At least that's what I think. So, I mean, it does, there's a couple of things from a design perspective. Um, you know, when you're the game, when you're not often going to be all sitting on the same side of the table. So, you know, the, the words are only facing one way. Um, so it's a little bit of a disadvantage for whoever's on the other side of the table because it adds that, you know, element of, of having to figure that out. And depending on how big a group you are, you can be fairly far away from the cards uh, so you won't necessarily see all of the details so you might miss out a little bit on some of the details that the person's trying to highlight for for that um, I do love the part though that you can add more cards over top that you can't go back uh, and and uh, and shuffle through them but you can you can add elements and, and one of the things that we noticed what I noticed that made it a lot of fun is as people are guessing you can figure out if you missed something so you know I would say you've got like that silo 
uh, look going, you've got those three words that you're trying to explain and you've got the timer and you've got the stress, you know, and you're trying to do that, you don't always notice the other words or you don't always know how people are going to interpret what you put. Like me trying to find relaxing and then the first three cards I put down all had squares as well. So everyone goes, that's obviously square. And me being like, no, dang it. Why are you going that direction? Yeah, or and then looking at the cards and like, or, there or, are squares. Or sometimes, you know, putting down cards and, you know, a couple people figure out the word that you're going for and then somebody else says, oh, I think it's that. And everybody else goes, oh, yeah. And you're like, no, you had the right words. And then you have to go back. And, you know, so it's it's a lot of fun in that respect. Um, and, you know, I, I think it adds a lot of atmosphere. And it's quick. Honestly, uh, you, you know, it's you're playing five rounds, two minutes each. Uh, and then a little bit of setup time in between. So definitely we, hits about the 20 minute mark, I found. Less than that, I, I would think. Around that. Yeah. Uh, so it means you can play it a couple times in an evening and there's no stress, right? You know, and I mean, we didn't win every single, we played it three times. We think, lost one. I think four and a half, actually. Yeah, well, it's because we kept playing afterwards. Like, oh, let's just play, let's just play a little longer. Oh, let's just play a little longer. That's just to say how much fun we were having. Just, you know, just guessing, uh, keeping the timer, but, you know, keeping the guessing going. And one thing that we don't have a lot of in our collection is good, quick, party games and this is one that I think really fits that mold it's quick to set up it's colorful the absurdist cards are fun I like the fact that it can be played competitively and cooperatively it means it's very easy to get to the table in a lot of different situations and the very low time commitment makes it a lot of fun sure enough we still we have cards against humanity we've got code names those games are great but setting up things like code names can take a lot more time than setting up something like Ven. so depending on what you're going for this can fit perfectly in your collection. Also, if you're gonna be playing with some kids and th as well, you're gonna find that it will be a, a lot more attractive to them due to the colors and things like that. I still think I prefer code names. Uh, I don't know, it depends. We haven't played it in a while. It's been a while. But, but I would say beware. also player beware. You know, you may figure out that you don't necessarily know exactly how your significant other's brain works. I mean, Jason and I have already figured out that we think in very different ways. Yes. Like when I had to put down 10 cards with the color orange until finally someone says, it was, was he me. trying to tell us? At least it was me. Yeah. At least I figured it out. However, you can figure out sometimes when you afterwards, you look at the person who's putting down the cards, and you're like, how does your brain work exactly? Yes. So on that note, I think it's time uh, to say, actually check out for the video. It should be coming out either very shortly on YouTube or um, RVM. Yeah, probably right after uh, this one, actually. So I don't think you'll uh, have any trouble finding it. So stay tuned for you know another 24 hours or so. You'll get to see it. And on that note, we're going to remind you to keep, keep playing, playing games. games. Hi, I'm Riley Stock from the Board Game Community Show. Thank you so much for letting me be an ambassador. It is an honor and privilege to be able to come on What You've Been Playing Wednesday. The Board Game Community Show is a podcast where I interview different people throughout the board gaming world, designers, content creators, anybody who plays board games. So I know that Tim talks about Star Wars Outer Rim last week, but I want to talk about the expansion, Unfinished Business. In case you missed it or you don't remember Tim talking about it last week, I'll give a quick summary. Players compete to become the most infamous smuggler slash bounty hunter in the Outer Rim. They do this by traveling throughout the Outer Rim, taking different jobs, picking up and delivering cargo, and hunting down bounties dead or alive. 
And then as they complete these jobs, they earn credits to buy new ships or gear or different upgrades or hire crew that are characters throughout the Star Wars universe. And then some jobs also award fame, which are essentially the victory points. A player's turn consists of three steps. Step one is move, heal, or take credits. Step two is any combination of delivering goods or bounties, trading with players in the same space, or performing the market action, which is acquiring the cards from the various market decks. And then the final step is the encounter step, where you will draw an encounter card based on what you want to do. It could be encountering on a planet or a nav point or meeting a contact. I love the base game, but Unfinished Business somehow fixes things that I didn't realize were problems in the original game. There's eight new characters to play as, new market cards, six new ships, and 11 new contacts that are usually more like the iconic characters in the Star Wars series. People like Ahsoka or Han Solo. They also added new AI cards for solo play, which could increase the difficulty or add a character card like Han Solo or Lando to the AI deck so that when that comes out, it makes it feel like, oh, I'm playing against Han Solo. They added more encounter cards, which add more story elements when you encounter on planets or nav points. And they also added more databank cards, which are the numbered cards. So when you are doing a job or encountering a contact on a planet, it'll tell you a number to go to. And you'll go through this numbered deck, take number 21, read it, resolve it. They've added more numbers to it, and they've added repeat numbers. So now if it tells you to take number 21, there might be two or three of them, and you draw one, and you don't know exactly which one you are going to take. So that might add to the replayability a bit. The Outer Rim is just this half circle, essentially, around a more civilized area of the galaxy. And so you can't travel from one end directly to there. You can't take that shortcut in the base game. You have to go all the way around the rim of that established area. So in this, it adds core worlds to each end of the outer rim. And so now, if you end your turn there and you do that encounter step using the core worlds, you could choose to encounter in the core worlds, or you could travel from one end to the other end, which is so nice because sometimes you don't want to take a bounty or a job or a or deliver cargo to the other side because it's so far away. But it's higher risk because it's a more established area. The Empire has a stronger presence there. You might end up taking damage because they spot you on your way to the other side. My personal favorite addition are the ambitions. It makes the game feel more thematic and less like just a race for victory points. Ambitions are like what motivates your character. Do you want to become a pirate? Do you want to serve the empire? Do you want to serve the rebellion? Do you want to become a legend or become the most feared person in the galaxy? They may add or change some setup things by giving you certain jobs to perform first or a certain amount of credits. And now instead of just competing for fame, you also have to complete some goals for your personal ambition. There's two to three goals that you have to complete before you can finish your final goal. And those goals might be something like encounter on a certain world or have positive influence with a certain faction. And then once you have all of those completed and the required fame, you can go and complete your final objective. And that is to go encounter somewhere specific. You read the story card, you play through it. If you succeed, you are the winner. I think it gives a more satisfying resolution for the player winning 
than just, hey, I have the most fame, so I'm famous now. Now you get to read through this story and experience the big moment, the big heist, the big whatever it is that your ambition has you setting out to do. As far as things that I don't like in the game, there's really not much. There's a lot of replayability. I think it's really fun. The story stuff is great. The one thing that this expansion adds that I'm a little bit hesitant on are favors. And I didn't use it when I played, but essentially what it does is I may be doing a job that requires piloting. And Han has piloting. I don't have piloting. So I can say, hey, Han, can I borrow your piloting skills to help me with this job? He goes, sure, kid, don't get cocky. And I roll my dice. I succeed. Oh, that's great. He gives me the favor. And now I have his favor token. Later, Han's like, oh, I need some influence, bud. So now he's calling in his favor. I give him back his favor token. I give him my influence. And we're square. I like the idea that you're giving a favor token and then you can recall it and gain these certain benefits. And they are listed benefits. So it's not like I can just be like, hey, I want three of your fame or, oh, hey, I want 20,000 credits. You know, it has to be one of the listed favors. My only hesitancy is anytime you have negotiations like that, there's the possibility that people just will always refuse to trade with you if you're perceived to be the best player. But I'm honestly excited to try it out because I think it sounds like they may have countered that a little bit here. I love the core game, but I don't think I'll play it without unfinished business. It doesn't add that much complexity to the game. So even teaching new players, it's not going to add much. I might take out the ambitions because that could get a little bit tricky. And a first game could be a little bit quicker just racing for fame. But if they're down for it, then I would prefer to play with ambitions too. And that's what I've been playing. Thank you so much for letting me come on. You can listen to the Board Game Community Show wherever you podcast. And until next time, keep nerding out. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this is a particularly special week for the What's Been Playing Wednesdays podcast because I believe by the time this episode airs uh, someone it, it will have been yeah. will have had a birthday. birthday happy birthday to Norm it's in yeah somewhere in around this airing of this episode <laughs> so I don't <laughs> happy know. birthday yeah happy thanks birthday, for putting Norm. this all together yeah <laughs> and but yeah what have we been playing we've been playing Clue um <laughs> By Hasbro. Classic. <laughs> I could not find any designer or uh, nope. <laughs> art, but it's by Hasbro Gaming. <laughs> yeah, we've been actually legitimately been playing Clue because our two boys were at their grandparents for a few days and they came back saying that they'd played Clue and that he wanted to teach us how to play it. And we had a copy sitting here. They had got it for Christmas, I believe. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's right. And um, I, I honestly, I feel maybe... In the recesses of my memory, I have maybe played this game once. It's not one that I had growing up. Hmm. So this was really, like, I would say this would be my introduction to Clue. Yeah, it's a game I didn't play a lot of, but I did have it as a kid. But I don't know, I don't think I've played it in over, you know, 25 years <laughs> or something. It's the last time I played it. But yeah, our, and our, our kids decided to uh, teach us how to play it again. And we had a lot of fun with it. Um we learned something new about Clue. We learned that Clue can be played 
um, as a team. Yeah, co op. I did not know. I don't Our, think that used to be a thing. I think that's kind of newly well, added. Either way, mm-hmm. I um, I was vehemently arguing with our oldest son like no sweetheart that is it is not a work together game there's no you don't play cooperatively he's like yes you do it's It's like like, no it's we're both kind of right because the (laughs) the game isn't that but then you can play and as i finished the rule books lo and behold there's a two-player or team variant so i ate my words and i apologized he was right he was right i was wrong technically he's right (laughs) um but if for anyone out there that doesn't know uh, about Clue and how it works. It's actually kind of a fun game. We actually had quite a bit of fun with it. Um, it is a game where it, you're kind of deducing who the murderer is, okay? The whole classic thing about... Mr. Body. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> killed somebody with something in some room. That's what you're trying to, de- <laughs> to, trying to decipher. Um, and the way that's done is that there's basically three decks of cards. There's a weapon deck... A, a room location deck. deck and a person deck. Yes. And you're going to remove one of each of those you're gonna, uh, six. without anyone seeing. Yeah. And you're going to slide those three cards into an envelope. So that's going to be inside that envelope is going to give you the information of who, exactly who killed yeah. uh, the person and where and, and with, with what. what. And then you're going to be collecting these clues. So. Yeah, I think there's, there's six um, potential suspects. Yeah, and then there, yeah, and so forth. Colonel Mustard, Miss Scarlet, Mrs. Peacock, Mr. Green, Professor Plum, yeah. and Doctor Orchid. And then there's uh, I think eight uh, different weapons, like a knife and a gun and a piece of rope and a candle candlestick stick and such. A dagger, yeah. And on the board, it's going to have all the rooms laid out, and you're going to have all these items kind of laying around randomly in the rooms. And then we're each going to have a set of different clues given to us at the beginning of the game, kind of random again. Like I'm going to have random knowledge that it's not. You basically shuffle all the three decks together and then yeah. deal them all out. And you know that the cards that are in your hand are... are not the murder not weapon or the, the murderer yeah. or the murder location. Right. So you're going to mark <laughs> those down on your little uh, clue sheet saying that, well, these are not possible yes. suspects or so forth. And you're going to be kind of moving your, your little pawn around um, So each, the board. yeah, in on the board, you've got like big squares that are the rooms. Like it's basically a floor plan of yeah, the of, of the like manor the mansion mm-hmm. and so you've got your rooms and then in between the rooms within the hallway it's like little it's a grid it's like little squares and yeah. there are a couple doorways in each room so when you're moving you got to move in and out of a doorway yeah. and then move along the little and by the little grid and to do so you're basically on your turn you're just going to roll two two die and they um they're going to determine how many uh, spots you can move and if and you get to read a clue card whether or not you get a clue card because there's an, uh, an extra deck of cards, I think they're called clue cards. They're called clue they cards, are. yeah. And they're going to give you kind of like a little, it's going to stir it up a little bit, and it's going to say um, something along the lines of, like, somebody screamed, and then uh, and then you can say that someone, if... Uh, you they can couldn't name, have name used a, that. Right? It's a, <laughs> yeah. If, <laughs> it couldn't have possibly, been, possibly have been, and then you could name somebody, say, like, Colonel Mustard, and then if somebody had Colonel Mustard, they would have to lay him... Down, and then it up. becomes open information then for it's everyone. Open information, you can scratch that off on your thing exactly. And um, but then you can make um, so, um, like proposals, suspicions, or something. Sus- yeah, not not accusations because if you make an accusation and you're wrong, you're out of the game. Yeah, you can only make an accusation once. Yeah, and but suggestion, a, su- a suggestion. Yes. Yeah, so you can say, I think, you know, maybe it could have been. Uh, mustard with the candlestick in the ballroom. So you have to be in the ballroom if you want to suggest yeah. the ballroom. And then but you yeah. 
you would go move. to the person to your left, and if if the person on your left has any one of those items in their deck, they have to show it to you secretly. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have any of those items, you kind of move on to the next person. But it also pulls Colonel Mustard into the room you're in. Yes. So that uh, if Colonel Mustard is an opponent and they were maybe hoping to get some information about mm-hmm. another room, you've now put them back to a different room where they have to go get yeah. there again. Little yeah, strategy. Neat. And you, yeah, you kind of like you're just gaining information from each other and trying to narrow it down. And the first person to narrow it down and come up with the correct accusation wins and if you if yeah if you did it wrong you're out of the game and then there's you know whoever's left to try yeah. and deduce who who did it and it's really fun it's it was actually kind of fun and um we played two three games of it yeah uh in a, i don't know in an hour or yeah. so you know it wasn't too long and uh, yeah i enjoyed it for what it was it was simple but but kind of fun yeah and uh, we did learn something else what we learned where dr dre got his name <laughs> oh, right we found out clue must have been dr dre's favorite game growing up which is where he got his name because <laughs> dr orchid in french is dr dre yeah but it's mystery not. solved folks <laughs> so now Adam you know you read it thinking that <laughs> it was <laughs> instead of dr orchid because it has the english and french on our copy. no 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 it's just that oh, it's yeah, dr okay. dre that's and what it happened. couldn't possibly be the french version of doctor no. that she was reading instead of <laughs> no of course it meant dr dre <laughs> but um okay. <laughs> yeah, in all seriousness, it was a fun game, and we did enjoy it, and it was particularly fun to play with the kids. Yeah. Um, so a really solid, fun uh, little game to play Putting with the kids. Putting on funny for sure. accents for the different characters yeah. and just having fun with them. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. good for what it was. I mean, I hadn't played it, like I said, 20, 25 years or something like that, right? Not even for what it was. It's a good little game in there. Yeah, it's fine. I like it. It's fine, yeah. Particularly good with the kids. Yeah. Um, but then, just before we wrap up here, we have been playing something else. We've been playing... Solar Storm from Dranda? Dranda Games? Dranda Games. Yeah, and uh, this is a game that we've been playing quite a bit here. You may have seen it on our Twitter feed a little bit. It's going to be one of the games that we feature on our next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast, which is going to be one of our rapid-fire review episodes where we're going to do two, three, four different games potentially in that episode, kind of smaller games that we'd like to just kind of rattle off. Decent little reviews of Smaller games, you know, that don't take up too much time. Yeah. So if you want to hear about Solar Storm, um, the card game, it's a fun little thing. You're going to hear about that on our next podcast. Yeah. And I think that's it for this week. So we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Born in the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon. And this is What Have You Been Playing? Uh, we're talking about Scandalo. Yeah, it's a one to six player game by the creator of Awkward Guests. Yeah. Similar to Awkward Guests, but in a way, upped a bit. It, it uses the same mechanics where you have cards that have ratings and you're trading those cards with other people to get clues uh the biggest change in this one i think is the theme yes. uh, you're moving away from a clue style murder mystery murder mystery to your tabloid reporters basically yeah you're running around trying to get the dirt on uh, on different celebrities and you're talking to their accomplices 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 <laughs> and you're trying to find a, a news 
newspaper that will report it. And find out actually what that story and, is. And what the story is. Uh, mechanically, uh, the biggest thing they've changed, I think, is you now have a separate board for doing your clues on. And the map is a lot Different. more... It, it's used a lot more to uh, cancel out options. Yeah, you can look at it and be like, okay, so... Well, it's not like you couldn't do, the, do that with Hogwarts. The, the other if, one did it. But it's not as he- heavily focused on it. Yeah, I think one. there's just more of a focus on it in this one. Uh, the other thing is that instead of being able... So the main thing you do on your turn is you're going to be like, I want to have information about this newspaper, this main celebrity, and this accomplice. Yep. And people will give you clues based on what you request information on. The difference between this and awkward guess is that you can ask about three different things instead of just two. <laughs> yeah, and, and the cards are language independent in this in this one, where awkward guess had actual text on their cards. Yeah, uh, I like the game. I I think it brings awkward guess to a an extra level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was more challenging. What I didn't like about it was the theme doesn't come through as clearly as Awkward Guess. Well, it's also a little bit more of an abstract theme that we're not quite as used to feeling. So maybe it is there, you're just not seeing it. as. It, it's it's very possible, and it's it, it's possibly just because the text isn't there on the cards. You, you don't get that, that story, right? Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Again, probably this this and Awkward Guess are games that we really do recommend playing with the app because the app will run all the solution for you. So you don't because if you don't play with the app, if you guess and get it wrong, you're just out of the game. Yeah, they, they produced an app that you can go in and say, I guess this, this and this. And it tells you if you're right or wrong uh, with the app. It means you can't guess the next round if you get it wrong. Without the app, you're looking in the book, and the book says this is the murderer, or these are the three things, and you're out of the game if you didn't get it right. Yeah, so it makes it more fun if it... It, it makes it more uh, inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't make it... I guess with the book, it would force you to be like, okay, am I 100% sure on this? Yeah, you're going to wait a lot longer. Uh, I found in this one, the cards are all uh, color-coded or there's color to them yeah and each block of 50 is color-coded on the back so setup and takedown is a lot cleaner and a lot quicker yeah because there's 250 240 250 cards and each game is a set has specific cards that you add in to have a specific end yeah, so when you're sorting those at the end of the game, it makes it a lot easier to put them back in their order where uh, Awkward Guests, they were all the same color, so you were looking at each number and sorting that way, where this one you could sort them by color first and then by number. Yeah, and I think they also lowered the player count from Awkward Guests to this one, because I think Awkward Guests goes to 8. Yeah, it w- does go to 8, and we tried it once at 8, and it took forever. Yeah. Uh, it just, it was so long. Because, <laughs> but you get all the information. So yeah. it's a very few rounds of everyone asking for information, but it's also everyone gets that information much quicker. So usually you'll have more people ask. To a, to a point with eight people, you can't trade with everybody because there's so many cards out there. Yeah, 
we've played these mostly at four players. We have played them at six where it does work. Uh, eight, I didn't think it worked. No, eight doesn't go quite as well. Yeah. But it might also just be the group. That... Yeah, so like for me, I we don't play a lot of deduction games. And these the both of these are my favorite of that style. And, and by deduction, it's, you know, think Clue, think uh, that style of game, not, you know, who is this person, right? You're not, you don't have to lie in the game. Yeah, there's no uh, secret opponent in it. No, the, really the only secret is what clues am I going to hand out, which clues I'm not. Because every once in a while you get that one clue and you're like, I don't want anybody else to have this one. Yeah, just keep it in your hand the entire game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so that is Scandalo. Uh, highly recommend it. And it is at stores now. Uh, I saw it online at least with Board Game Bliss and a few of those. Yeah. Uh, haven't seen it in local shops yet. Uh, solid game. Uh, not quite entry level as thematic as Awkward Guess, but still good. Yeah. Okay, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week. Hello. My name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleNumus.com, and I'm here to talk to you today about the games I played this week for what you've been playing Wednesday. This week, I got to play the new Azul. Not Azul Stained Glass of Sintra or Azul Summer Pavilion. This is the new, new, new Azul titled Queen's Garden. Michael Kiesling is a prolific designer, even before the advent of Azul. The palaces of Carrara, Vikings, and Heaven and Ale are just a few of his credited designs outside of the Azul line. In Azul Queen's Garden, players are trying to build the most beautiful garden. To do this, they will acquire tiles and garden extensions, then pay to play them onto their boards. Each round, different aspects will be scored, and at the end of the game, the player with the most points is the winner. Azul Queen's Garden invoked a lot of the same feelings as Calico, which was designed by Kevin Russ and published by Flatto Games. All of the tiles have a color and a pattern. When you take tiles from the center into your personal reserve, you need to either take all of one color but of differing patterns or of one pattern but differing colors. You cannot take identical tiles for love nor money. When you want to play tiles from your reserve into your garden, you must pay for them. Each tile cost is dictated by its pattern, which is also equal to the points it can generate at the end of the game. The tiles you pay with must come from your reserve and they must match either the color or pattern of the tile you want to place. Again, you cannot use identical tiles for payment. The tile you're placing counts towards paying for the cost. You know, for example, the three cost blue butterfly token would require, would require me to discard two other butterfly tokens from my reserve or two other blue tiles of different patterns. At the end of the game, if you've made a group of three or more tiles of the same color or pattern, they will score victory points equal to what it costs to put them out. Also, at the end of the game, any tiles remaining in your reserve score negative points, which absolutely crippled one of the players at our table. This is by far the most complex Azul game I've played so far, and it didn't resonate with my group. It felt Difficult to get the most expensive tiles out onto the board as they require you to have five other tiles that match the color or pattern. Considering that your reserve only has spaces for 14 tokens, that's almost half your reserve being pitched into the bin to place a single six point tile. 
Now, if you can get it so that the six point tiles score twice at the end game, it can be incredibly lucrative. I managed to build an arboretum of all six colored trees, which were only worth one point each, but they got me a lot of points. And I got some nice groupings of colors as well to double up on placing those tiles. The decisions were difficult to conceptualize, and this didn't feel particularly satisfying. The luck required to play these big point tiles seemed really intense, as you might need to have a laser focus on getting the required tiles to pay them to get these big tiles out under the table. In the end, we all just agreed we'd rather play Calico, or even just the classic Azul. I'll keep playing new Azuls as they come out, as I generally like Michael Kiesling's designs, but to this day, the original Azul is by far my favorite one of the series. Another game I played this week is Lost Cities, the board game. Now, I've talked about Lost Cities in depth on my blog, as it's one of my favorite two-player games. I've also played Lost Cities Rivals, which has a bidding mechanic at its core. Now, the allure of these spin-offs is the ability to play with more than just two players. Lost Cities, the board game by Reiner Knizia, published in 2008, takes the ladder-climbing gameplay of the two-player classic and expands it to four players. On each turn, players must play a card from their hand, either to their own supply, to move one of their workers down a track, or to the common discard pile. There'll be one for each of the five colors. I'm not as big a fan of this iteration as I am of the two-player version, or even the Rivals, which has a bidding mechanic on it. The tensions of this game are diluted with the much larger deck. There are multiples of each card, and you can play the same number twice in a row. It's not impossible for you to exceed one of the tracks entirely, especially using the bonuses that you can pick up along the way. Lost Cities, the board game, is fine. It's exactly what I want out of a board game cafe game, one that I was happy to try once, but will really never feel the need to pull it out or play it again. And that's all I played this week. If you'd like to read my board game reviews, you can find them over on my blog, meepleandthemoose.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at moosemeeple or on Instagram at meepleandthemoose. Have a happy Wednesday. Hi everybody, this is David Rodriguez from the All Games New World YouTube channel. Uh, before I get into my game, I want to wish Norm of Cardboard Conjecture a happy birthday. I'm told that the day this releases is his birthday. So, happy birthday Norm. If it's not actually your birthday, then happy early or very late birthday. So, uh, recently my wife and I had a really kind of special day. We were able to go to uh, Gamerati headquarters and play the upcoming crowdfunding game to breeze, which is designed by Randy Flynn, the designer of Cascadia. And uh, to add to the excitement of that, we actually played with Randy Flynn. We ended up in a five-player game of Tabriz. And so this game takes place in a Persian bazaar. And you take the role of merchants trying to create rugs to sell to the populace. And this is a really interesting game because it is a worker movement game rather than worker placement. Uh, you each have three assistants that start in the middle of the board. And you'll be going to various places on the board following certain paths. There are branching paths, so you can choose which way to go. But at least at the beginning of the game, your assistants can only go three spaces at a time. So you're a little bit limited in how far you can go. You can't just put your assistants anywhere on the board. You can occupy space that someone else has occupied, but you can't go to the same space that you have already gone to that turn. So you can do the same action that's on any particular space twice in the same round. Now, what you're doing is you're going around and you're collecting these resources. They are um, 
Let's see, I'm not going to remember all of them. They're cotton, carmine, camel hair, I believe, silk, and then there's one other type of dye. So three materials and two different types of dyes. And you're also collecting money as you do this. Now, there are commissions that you're trying to fill. There are, I believe, commoner commissions, merchant commissions, and noble commissions. As you go uh, higher up in rank on those commissions, they become tougher to get, but they also have greater rewards. Now, when you do these commissions, they will give you uh, money or they might give you an ongoing effect that you could do every round and some of them will increase your skill as well. So as your skill increases, you'll be allowed to do some of those higher end commissions because at first you start at only being able to do the commoner ones, but you'll move on to the others as you go. You'll get to the point where you can move your assistants four spaces instead of three and there's a few other bonuses that you get as you go up in skill as well. So these commissions typically will be a combination of materials that you need. For instance, you might need uh, two wool and one carmine to do like a basic mission and that will get you your reward and you can turn that in at the end of any of your turns. You don't have to go anywhere particular to turn it in. And one other complication is each marketplace on the board has a limited amount of each resource. So for instance, if a space has three and someone goes and buys all three, there's no more of that resource for the rest of the round. It does fill up at the end of each round though. And as these spaces get more and more filled, you can tend to get more of your resource for less money. So it can be a really good deal if no one swoops in and takes that resource that you really want a lot of. However, at the end of the round, those markets also refill a certain amount. And if they go over their max limit at that time, that entire resource is gone for the next round. So it's, it's almost like they've decided they can't sell it all and it's just gone on fire sale and they've gotten rid of all of it. So it's an interesting balancing act. And during the game, you find yourself uh, constantly having to, to switch gears because your opponents will go and buy up the resources that you really needed. Now, some of those spaces don't just sell resources. Some of them are trading posts where you can uh, give a certain resource to get a certain combination of resources back. There are also alleys that have things that are more based on chance. Like often you'll have to roll a die to see what sort of thing is available, for instance. I won't go into too much detail there, but they are kind of an interesting way to get some great deals sometimes. And each of these markets and alleyways and whatnot is double-sided. I'm not sure if every single one has a different thing on both sides, but some of them do, which can add variety to each play. So you're gonna keep going, trying to fill as many commissions as you can until someone has either maxed out their skill track, which is I believe 14 spaces, or they have fulfilled nine contracts and that will trigger the end game. At that point, everyone will go to the end of that round and then whoever has the most prestige, which is like your level of fame, will win. And that prestige is gotten, of course, by fulfilling contracts and then also your ending resources uh, can affect it as well. This game was really, really fun. It was, it kind of reminded me of Century Spice Road mixed with a worker placement game, but was so much more interesting and uh, and tight than that. Just running around trying to get the stuff you need was really, really difficult because people would rush in and get them before you could. But it was also incredibly fun and easy to learn. There's kind of a lot to it. I feel like it's, it's hard to explain it all uh, in this format, but despite there being a lot of rules, it was not too hard to pick up and get going. I didn't see anyone really stumbling with the rules at all. It was just a lot of fun. As much as I loved Cascadia and, and it is you know renowned for being fantastic, I think with this game, Randy Flynn has outdone himself. I think this game is even better. 
I absolutely intend to back it. So uh, check it out. We will be doing a, a video on it sometime soon where we go a little more in depth than I could here and you'll get to see some of the uh, components and whatnot. So if you'd like to check that out, my channel again is called All Games New and Old on YouTube. If you subscribe, you'll get to know uh, right when that video pops up. You can also follow me on Twitter at All Games New and Old or on TikTok, I'm All Games New Old. So that's all the places you can find me. I hope you all have a great week and I'll talk to you again next week. Hey there, everybody. Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, what have I been playing lately? Well, before I talk about that, I do want to mention that uh, as I'm compiling this episode, and I usually record at the end, I'd like to say thank you so much to everybody for the, the wonderful birthday wishes and the reminders that I'm getting old. And for those who know me quite well, I don't base my age on chronology. I base it on maturity. And as my daughter says, I will always be 12. <laughs> but uh, and speaking of my daughter, um, we had the opportunity to play Chronicles of Crime, uh, Curse of the Pharaoh. And uh, she, wow, she absolutely... Loves, she's so engaged in this game. I, I, I wouldn't say loves. She has a love-hate relationship with this game. She loves it when she's able to, when everything's just settled in and she's able to see what's going on. She hates it the moment before that eureka light bulb moment happens. And it's, as a parent, you know, I look at it and go, yeah, that frustrated want to flip the table side of you, that's all me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, for those who don't know Chronicles of Crime, uh, wonderful uh, implementation of the QR code system, and uh, the and they have an app that runs the I I, sh I, I would say the narration and the engine of the game. Um, I mean, it could be done via cards, and I mean, but it would be a very complicated and very fiddly system. Uh, so they use the whole story architecture, networking nodes of connectivity and jumping points with QR codes. And depending on what codes are, are identified releases new information and new information releases connectivity between uh, elements, right? If you're interviewing a suspect and you talk to the suspect about a certain item, then it'll release some narrative information for you. And ultimately speaking, you are trying to solve the crime. It is so engaging. It is the uh, perfect balance of technology and cardboard. I am of the... Now, this is just my own personal opinion. I'm of the, 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 on the side with the apps, board game apps and board... Oh, you've got a board game on the iPad. I don't want to play it on my iPad or my phone. I want to play it on a table, right? So I tend to lean away from games, board games on devices because that's not my intention is, to, is how to use that media. But they do a wonderful job on curating information and releasing it in such a manner that is that kind of, not necessarily choose your own adventure, but discover your own adventure. 
And I really appreciate, and this is just the base game. I haven't even gotten into, you know, um, as far as developers and technology goes, each iteration is going to have what was previously learned. I mean, just like movies, what was previously learned is applied to the current model, and the current model is now the base model for the new development, right? So uh, the I understand they have a kid's kind of Chronicles of Crime coming out, um, and I definitely want to play that with my with Daniel and see how that works because it is from a teacher's point of view, it is such a good branched learning methodology uh, of 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 discovery and of of you know just just the whole realm of learning. So, I mean, I could I could probably base a whole cardboard in the classroom episode on this so that that's another story that's another topic that's another time and uh speaking of time we're at that perfect one hour point and i would like to say thank you so much for listening to everything that we've had to say uh thank you so much for the content creators that uh that contribute every week and uh once again uh thank you to our new ambassador to the cast Riley from Board Game Community Show. I hope you have some fun with this bunch of um, uh, creative, I was going to say, you know, wacky (laughs) group of people, but absolutely lovable and adorable as always. And uh, that being said, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?